0: day on Against the Grain. How do we move from anthropocentrism to ecocentrism? Does the idea of the balance of nature hold water? And what about sustainability? Are all varieties of that concept desirable? I'm C.S. The ecological thinker and musicologist Aaron Allen shares his insights, coming right up. And this is Against the Grain. On Pacifica Radio, my name is C.S. Song. He distinguishes between environmental crises and ecological change. He argues against the balance-of-nature paradigm. He notes the difference between strong and weak forms of sustainability, and he contends that what's called expressive culture can help us move toward ecocentrism. He is Aaron Allen, and the essay in which he makes these and other arguments appears in a new volume called Performing Environmentalisms, Expressive Culture and Ecological Change. Aaron S. Allen is Associate Professor of Musicology and Director of the Environment and Sustainability Program at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. He co-edited with Kevin Daw the volume Current Directions in Ecomusicology, Music, Culture, Nature. When Aaron and I connected recently, he began with these comments about anthropocentrism.
1: Anthropocentric, without the ism on the end, is a pretty simple just focusing on the human. It's, I think, unremarkable to say humans focus on humans. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's the suffix ism where the term for me and for particularly for environmental philosophers where this term is is primarily used where the term becomes problematic because it ends up being a focusing on humans that excludes the rest of life and it essentially it ignores the fact that we rely on non-humans on other forms of life on the non-living parts or the inspirited parts of the world that Uh, are not human and by focusing on the human at the exclusion of everything else we have a set of beliefs and and create a system of activities that divorce us from the planetary context that keeps us alive and so anthropocentrism this ideology um, is so broad-based and profuse that it has spawned and created all of these problematic things that we do to others and to the planet, including to other humans. So I'm worried not about the anthropocentric studies uh, that folks do or the kinds of research that people do on humans. There's nothing wrong with that. It's when we do it to such a degree that we end up ignoring the appropriate context. And many scholars of expressive culture writ large focus on context, the context that their human interlocutors have when they make their artistic works, their their expressive culture. And so by ignoring the non-human context, the environmental contexts, Um, We are doing a disservice ultimately to those humans and to the systems that keep us all making expressive culture. And so I'm essentially trying to get us out of that mindset to take into account the environmental and non-human contexts that... Uh, provide for everything. And so essentially, that's, you know, the the key element here, the the distinction of anthropocentric and anthropocentrism as that ideology. And I'm trying to get us to move away from that anthropocentrism and towards a greater ecocentrism as we deal with expressive culture.
0: And I see that what you mean by expressive culture is that realm that involves human acts of creativity. Is that right? yes
1: my particular realm is music and sound studies it's one form of expressive culture but there are of course visual arts and movement arts and other kinds of material arts and things like that but indeed it has to do with creativity and i think the the aspects of expressive culture are often overlooked in the environmental world because it's not something dealing specifically with technological fixes um, or big systems that need a tweaking changing undoing um that are of course part of the focus for environmental efforts uh, so I, I think that looking at these expressive cultures and the various ways of doing expressive culture are often not part of the uh ma- kind of mainstream environmental approach but it, it's absolutely central to have creativity and the concerns with creativity however they're expressed in whatever media that they're expressed, be a part of how we deal with environmental understandings and environmental problem solvings, working for sustainability, et cetera. So indeed, expressive culture is very much about the, the arts and creativity. And in this context, in this book and in my essay, very much about connecting that with environmental concerns.
0: If expressive culture refers to or comprises human acts of creativity, then it is anthropocentric by its very nature, right? I mean that that's sort of unavoidable.
1: You're absolutely right, and I think that what we have to understand in terms of dealing with the anthropocentrism and ecocentrism discussion is that when we're we're talking about ecocentrism, it's an idealistic state. It's a essentially it's a paradox. We're unable to fully be ecocentric because we are anthro. We are the, the humans doing this. So indeed, expressive culture is something that is a, an anthropocentric venture. It is something that we're doing, that we humans are doing. But at the same time, many creators and artists are, are doing it in reaction to their environments, in concert with environments, using re- resources, materials, that are not human and we need to acknowledge those. Um, and so the the kind of the expression that I use is moving from anthropocentrism towards ecocentrism um, and that it's not a categorical phase change, but that we, we need to stop being so very and purely anthropocentric and instead add in some elements of ecocentrism so that we can do a little better uh, to encompass the greater picture.
0: What's the relationship between ecocentrism and deep ecology?
1: So Arne Næss, the Norwegian philosopher who characterized deep ecology, set it up in contrast to shallow ecology. The shallow ecology approach being one that's very anthropocentric, one that says, well, we care about the environment and, and ecological matters, yes, but as only in so much as it pertains to humans. And deep ecology was one that, instead saw value in all life, uh, value in systems that sustain life, that, um, that were abiotic components of systems that were the things that we might not typically like, such as the mosquitoes <laughs> or, or the, the diseases that we don't like, but we tried to get to a place of respect for all life and allow all life to flourish and that is um it's quite difficult when that mosquito is buzzing around and you want to swat it um to, to have respect for all life or when the mosquito bites you and and takes your blood and feeds on you and so it's a very difficult position to fully maintain but i think it's valuable to strive for it and so i think deep ecology essentially is a, one example of a kind of ecocentric ecosophia an approach uh towards life that is centered in systems and ecological systems rather than centered on humans and their interactions.
0: Aaron Allen joins us on Against the Grain. He's associate professor of musicology and director of the Environment and Sustainability Program at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. We were talking about an essay he contributed to the volume Performing Environmentalisms I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So your article is about anthropocentrism and ecocentrism and expressive culture. And much of the discussion revolves around kind of the, right, if we're going to be ecocentric, we have to think about two things, environmental crises and ecological change. In your article, you provide a brief summary of environmental crises. You begin with the Industrial Revolution. Can you can you lay that out for us?
1: Sure. I think there's an important distinction to make between ecological changes, which are part of the earth that have been going on as long as the earth has been going on, and environmental crises, which are anthropogenic, which are caused by humans and human activities. And so while humans always modify their contexts, that we, we have always in some way impacted. Most critters do. Uh, coral polyps obviously uh, modify their their contexts to, to make their coral reefs, right? So all, all, all things modify their environments. We've always been doing that. And so humans have done that for a long time, but at a certain point, our powers became so strong in modifying the world, we developed fossil fuel technologies in order to power our civilizations that ended up causing enormous kinds of problems. And so really the environmental crises that I'm talking about that are making such a big difference as it bears on expressive culture are these since The industrial revolution when we started using fossil fuels and really extracting from the earth at at great great volumes of material and taking that ancient sunlight and burning it and putting it into the atmosphere and that has precipitated a series of amazing revolutions in terms of technology and development where we can fly and we can communicate across continents and, and do amazing things. Um, but of course has created a series of of problems, of crises that uh, range from the extirpation of much of the life on the planet um, where we're destroying the biodiversity to where we're in- injecting fossil fuel byproducts, pollution of various types. Plastic is one example, but many others, of course, are out there into the life systems all over the planet in these places where it never existed. Of course, we know that there are microplastics at the bottom of the Marianas Trench and at the top of Mount Everest and at the ice cores at both poles. Um, so we have fundamentally altered a lot of systems throughout the planet with our pollution. We've also created a, kinds of inequities because those people who harnessed ancient sunlight and were able to uh, use its work and benefit from the industry and the materials that were created, they benefited greatly. And it's a small group of people um, and they basically have you know, uh, this amazing amassed wealth that makes their position in the world so starkly different from so many others who are the ones who end up having to be on the short end of that um, kind of pollution burden where they can't escape from it, they're not benefiting from it, they're only receiving it uh, and suffering under the consequences of a changed climate, um, of the pollution, of the inequities, of the the extraction of biodiversity and resources that leave very little behind. And uh, these are the people who, for example, have been left behind in the uh, what Naomi Klein calls the sacrifice zones and so some individuals have really benefited from the industrial revolution and others have not and that's a, a human problem and it is also an environmental problem there's the climate change and biodiversity and pollution pieces we tend to think of as environmental crises but of course they are caused by humans and they impact humans as well. It's It's a both and situation and these environmental crises are distinct from what we can observe in the ecological cycles of the planet that have forced us to adapt and do things in different ways normally without these kind of anthropogenic crises that humans have have created.
0: So there are, as you said, environmental crises, ecological change, it's important to distinguish between the two. Ecological change as you indicate in this article in this book, Performing Environmentalisms, butts up against the notion, the widespread notion, that there is a kind of balance of nature. What is meant by the balance of nature and how influential has this concept been or become?
1: So the balance of nature, uh, essentially the way I like to describe it is that we have this ideal of wilderness, that somehow there's this wilderness that's untouched by by humans, that's not uh, been affected by these environmental crises, that's not polluted, that's um, not being um, exterminated or extracted and you know, turned into toilet paper or whatever the case is, um, but that there are these wilderness places that are somehow all natural and they exist in this constant state that they're unchanging and so this idea of balance of nature comes across in in ecological sciences in particular as the idea of a climax state uh, for example, if a forest was destroyed, say, by a volcano eruption and, and lava did, destroys everything and that eventually the grasses would come back and then the the bushes and, and the birds would drop more seeds and then more trees would come and eventually the, the forest understory would develop and bigger trees would come and the, then the the forest would gradually change to the longer lived species and we'd eventually get to a kind of forest that would remain the same until the next volcano. Um, comes in and the lava destroys it, or whatever the example is. And that kind of climax, that arrival of something was seen as that kind of natural balance where things wanted to return to, where the where nature wanted to return to. And that becomes then this wilderness ideal put into law, essentially, in the United States with things like the Wilderness Act that um, provide for these unmodernized, roadless areas where technology can't um, Kind of impede and where we can't cut down things and destroy or mine these kinds of places that we protect in this idealistic state. So for ecology, this is um, what some scholars have called an enduring myth that nature has this kind of balance that is natural that um, is this kind of ideal state, and it, it's problematic because it's not really tested scientifically, and we see that um, change over time and over long periods of time is the norm more than stasis. But the good thing is I think that ecological sciences are coming to grip with this and they're moving away from it slowly to understand the necessary place of dynamic equilibrium, that there's, there may be these states that systems, ecological systems want to maybe aspire to, but that they're gonna be changing on a regular basis. And there's not one climactic approach uh, after succession, that things would arrive to and then have this perfect balance. So that's really the the ideal of the balance of nature, and it it's a problem I think because it t- it tends to make us think about sustaining nature and sustainability as uh, kind of locking things up and keeping things static because that's the balance of nature and that we want to kind of lock things up and not let them change. When in fact what we really need to do to face these environmental crises is to understand that we need to embrace change, that we need to allow the uh, the world to change and allow human cultures to change as well. And that's where I get into the concerns with sustainability, uh, how sustainability is really taken off because I think that it gives people a sense of this idea of balance of nature that's ah, we can we can sustain things. We can keep doing what we've been doing if we just tweak around the margins. Well, that's a kind of weak sustainability or what I call sustainability maintain that avoids change. But I advocate for a strong sustainability that advocates um, that that is about change, that it's about it's about making a difference and doing things differently because ultimately, if we want to be around for a long time, we humans want to be around for a long time, we got to change the ways that we're doing things, the ways that we're uh, polluting the planet, we're fouling our own nest, the way that we're destroying other life forms, the way that we're altering the the very biogeochemical cycles that sustain us on the planet. So we have to do things differently. And so we need to embrace that change.
0: You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. My guest is Aaron S. Allen. He teaches musicology at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, where he directs the Environment and Sustainability Program. He co-edited with Kevin Daw the volume Current Directions in Musicology: Music, Culture, Nature. That was the first major book published about the new field of ecomusicology. And he's contributed an essay to the volume Performing Environmentalisms, That's the focus of today's discussion, that book edited by John Holmes McDowell, Catherine Borland, Rebecca Dirksen, and Sue Tui. Right, this term, this concept, this this mode of study, sustainability, plays a prominent role in your essay in this volume. And as you said, you prefer strong sustainability over weak sustainability. Uh, You write that sustainability is often seen as comprising three major overlapping categories, environment, economics, and social equity. And you would actually like to move beyond or to add something to this three-part model, but let's just focus on the three-part model. So what are the environmental, economic, and social equity dimensions of sustainability?
1: In kind of standard Sustainability, uh, you know, if you, if you just, for example, do an image search on sustainability, you'll find all kinds of uh, concentric circles, Venn diagrams that show these overlapping realms of environment, economics, and social equity um, in various kinds of terminology, but essentially those three, the three E's. And environment really deals with the earth system so we're thinking about the fundamental context of all life that exists on earth and so the various components of our biosphere all the ecosystems that comprise it the basic processes of providing water air uh, food resources um, that humans and other life forms uh, require and the problems of pollution and biodiversity uh, or or the extirpation of biodiversity being the problem, Um, pollution, whether it be through plastics or chemicals or um, a simple carbon in excess from ancient sunlight. So when we're dealing with environment, we're concerned with those ecological aspects that are typical in the study of uh, the the fields of biology and ecology, for example, um, and how ecosystems work on the planet.
0: Okay, and uh, what about economics and social equity? So, when we're dealing with
1: economics, um, this is uh, a contentious part of the Venn diagram of the three columns, or the the pillars, or the three-legged stool, however you want to visualize the idea of sustainability. Um, And and I I prefer to talk about economics as systems of exchange, because uh, fundamentally, we need to use resources we we need to eat we need to get water we need we have waste that we need to dispose of we need shelter we we need fundamental things and we use systems of economics in the the kind of modern world to deal with these exchanges so that we can get what we need essentially so these are the systems of exchange but the the typical and I think unfortunate approach to economics is one that involves profit that, that focuses on businesses making money. And I, I like to push back against that because uh, it's not the only way of under. it's a very narrow way, way essentially of understanding economics. Um, and it is much more about these human exchange systems that exist throughout societies in, in different ways. Um, the, the major one that we understand today and that is pretty dominant is the capitalist system that um is where we get this idea of kind of making a profit and and benefiting so you'll hear sometimes the three e's set up as the three p's as people planet profit um which uh is is one way to promote a kind of sustainability uh, i think that's not a very strong sustainability as i as i argue in the article and that gets me to the the third e or the the first p of people which is the social equity piece or the the equity piece that um is about human-human interactions that has to do with justice and fairness um touching back on our discussion earlier this is the uh this is the anthropocentric component of sustainability this is worrying about human-human interactions and uh, how we treat others and how there's difference that is represented in basically differential forms of power and who has uh, choice, and who has access and who doesn't. And so when we're talking about equity, we're talking about the kind of our social structure.
0: So environment, economics, and equity, or alternatively, planet, profit, and people are considered the three legs of the sustainability stool. But you find this three-part model problematic or inadequate. Why? Why?
1: The 3E e or the 3P or the three concentric circle model of sustainability is problematic to me because it tends to give equal weight to all three of these uh, domains and put them in a Venn diagram of equal uh, stature. I don't see it that way and I don't think it's logical that way. I think it's a misrepresentation and it's a way of doing a kind of weak sustainability that avoids change because if we really want to represent these categories accurately. We need to take the earth and the environment, that that first E as, as fundamental. It's the biggest circle, it's the main basket into which our society and our human relations uh, these power relations between people, the questions of fairness and justice fit into that basket of the planet. If we're conceptualizing this model as kind of circles. And so we're now within the earth as a system where our society is. And our economic realm fits still smaller within that social equity piece, that societal piece. And so they're not really three equal circles in a Venn diagram. They're not really three equal, columns holding up a, a sustainable world or three legs of a stool these are the, the typical ways that sustainability is um framed as a concept and i i think it does it, it does the anthropocentrism that i was complaining about earlier that uh and a move to putting earth first in in that system and that model provides the more ecocentric approach to understanding sustainability and so Earth as the, and, and environment as the biggest basket with our social one next in it, and then economics within our social system, and here's where then I propose that fourth element of the framework, aesthetics, as also within our social system. It's not somehow equal to it as in four circles in a venn diagram but it is contained within it so if we're focusing on expressive culture and we're coming at it through the angle of aesthetics this having to do with sensory perception and it's not something that just humans do but other critters as well and other life forms as well have senses and they perceive the world around them and they react to it and how we ultimately react to these perceptions and forms our ethics so that aesthetic piece is a sub component of the framework of sustainability that fits within our social relations and of course those social relations still fitting within our earth system
0: when people hear the word aesthetics they often think as i do about beauty about elegance your use of the word aesthetics is much broader correct that's right
1: uh i think most people do categorize the term aesthetics as visual beauty very scopic, very relying on the eyes, we have other senses though, and uh, philosophers tend to, uh, not always, but tend to pull back a little bit and see it in a broader context of understanding aesthetics as our reactions to perceptions. And so we can study these things scientifically, we can also think about opinions of what we like and don't like, Um, and I'm trying to use that broader expression of aesthetics so that it's not just scopic. That was kind of my first move in pulling out aesthetics as something broader is that we needed to get away just from being the visual. Because of course I study music and sound and these things are really important to me. And that's another sense. And so um, I also think though that the, the power in aesthetics is a kind of fourth element of sustainability is that when we start thinking about our sensory perception, we ultimately get to the values that we have. What we like, what we don't like, how we relate to other people about what we like and don't like, and ultimately then what we think is right and wrong in the world. So essentially our sense of ethics. And so aesthetics leads to ethics. And it's not just a play on words, it's that the things that we sense in the world lead us to what we believe is right and wrong. And that ultimately informs the things that we want to change and the things that we want to maintain. And so uh, I think we can use aesthetics to evaluate the world, world around us so that we can work towards different ways of changing and maintaining in sustainability frameworks.
0: That's the voice of Aaron Allen. He's Associate Professor of Musicology and Director of the Environment and Sustainability Program in the Department of Geography, Environment, and Sustainability at UNC Greensboro. He's co editor with Jeff Titan of the forthcoming book Sounds, Ecologies, Musics, forthcoming from Oxford University Press. He edits the journal Eco Musicology Review and he contributed an essay entitled Diverse Eco-Musicologies, Making a Difference with the Environmental Liberal Arts, to the volume Performing Environmentalisms, Expressive Culture and Ecological Change. I'm C.S., and the program is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. This tying of aesthetics to ethics is interesting because... To say that what is aesthetically right is ethically right or is often ethically right suggests that we, that our aesthetic sensibilities are right, are accurate, are in tune, let's say, with, if we're talking about the environment, with the natural world. That's not necessarily true, though, right?
1: No, I don't think it is. And I think that's where things get really sticky. Um, We have different aesthetic preferences that can lead to different ethical perspectives and ethical positions. And so things are difficult with a sense of what's right. But I think what why I uh, put aesthetics and ethics in this kind of constrained basketed approach to sustainability is that uh, I think it's one way of engaging and exploring. We can get at this tension of how we have differential ethics and believe different things, and we can explore that through cultural expressive media. So the arts, through music, through literature, through theater, um, through visual art, whatever the case is. And, And that helps, it helps us understand our ethics and it helps bring us together as well. And I think that there's where we can end up doing some things that help the larger goals by coming at it through an, an aesthetic perspective. So just to, to give a couple of quick little examples here, this is the idea that if we try to understand planetary function, we can use the arts to do that. We can listen and we can maybe make music about it. We can, um, and this is a classic case in environmental education is to use art to explain things, to draw things, to simply use illustrations. Um, So we can uh, enhance our perception of the environment through using aesthetic media, but we can also transform culture when we engage in the aesthetic and ethical and arts-based approach to human connectivity as it m- impinges on environmental problems or as it relates humans to environment. So I think that um, it's, it's by no means is this a panacea or we, we're never going to solve all our problems this way, but I think it's an undervalued approach. Because it's difficult, because it's subjective, because we disagree, it ends up being quite difficult and I think that that's where We need to put more effort into trying and to working on these things because the technological fixes aren't going to solve everything and we're going to disagree about those anyway. So I think if we can focus on some of the cultural aspects of how we agree and disagree and how we can focus on how how we can use culture to change our ways to create a more sustainable world, then we can make some progress rather than just focusing on the technical things that we can measure.
0: Right, and I think your assertion in this piece, in this essay, that art changes our perception of the world is very important. Uh, But there is something about art and its capacity to inspire wonder, in particular, that I find very compelling, you find very compelling, How important is the experience of wonder to what people can get out of art, and what can wonder translate to in terms of awareness of the environment, of ecology, and uh, activism toward uh, saving the planet?
1: I think wonder gives sense of purpose. And when we're curious, when we want to engage, when we want to connect, when we feel something has meaning. Even if we're not exactly sure what the meaning is, even if we don't know how to express it, we don't know how to put it into words, um, that sense of wonder is powerful to create connections, to create caring, and to engage us, to to learn maybe, to uh, understand possibilities and problems, to change our ways to figure out some things that work and focus on them, to come together maybe with people um, who might even be different from us and think differently or wonder about different things um, because we can find some kind of baseline meaning that may not be on the surface the same, but that has a, a drive that can bring us together. And I think that the arts can help us do that and we we tend however I think to in our contemporary 21st century culture we tend to monetize things too much and create a a sense of well what what do we get out of the arts what does it do for us and you know the results are in educational curricula that downplay the importance of arts and try to push people into STEM fields and give people practical things to do uh, so that they get jobs and make money. And I think that that's, a, that's part of the neoliberal capitalist ideology that infuses our world. Whether or not we believe in it or disagree with it, um, it's it's part of what governs our world. And having something like a sense of wonder doesn't really fit into that. So I think we tend to downplay its importance and we don't focus on it enough. But I think that this is why people love music, why people engage with art, um, why people go to the theater, uh, watch movies. There's this underlying aesthetic response that comes from a multiplicity of sensory stimuli that makes us feel in ways that can help connect us as people to create a, a sense of empathy and to uh, drive us towards greater understanding and greater connection and a kind of a, a drive to do things differently and, and get off the path that we're on which in, in my estimation and I think quite a few other people's estimations is leading us off a cliff and so we need to change that direction and I'm not entirely convinced that rational evidence and scientific data and more information will do that um, and I'm not entirely convinced that a sense of wonder or a, a sense of aesthetics and sustainability will do that either. We need both kinds of approaches and we don't need to, to, to ignore one at the expense of the other. Uh, we really need all kinds of approaches and this is just one I think that is underappreciated. This, this sense of wonder and this aesthetic appreciation as a component of sustainability that we need to emphasize more and not ignore so much.
0: David Orr has proposed a, an approach, I think it's a four-pronged approach, to confronting environmental crises and ecological change via the environmental liberal arts. Well, we've all heard about the liberal arts. What does he mean by the environmental liberal arts? So the
1: environmental liberal arts, first off, are not some kind of... Um, conservative closing of the mind that rests on a, a list of classical works. That's that's not at all what he's getting at here in terms of liberal arts. What he's essentially arguing for is the development of the whole person, an educational approach that does not pigeonhole a person or um, yeah. focus on very narrow skills, but that brings about a kind of ecologically literate citizen uh, who is able to understand what caring for life, whether it's human life or non-human life or or just the the basic idea of life on the planet um, is all about. And so in the environmental liberal arts, we essentially wanna make these ecologically literate citizens who are able to distinguish health from its opposite and it's very it, David Orr's work has been very motivating and powerful for me uh, I assign his readings in a lot of my classes I can remember coming across his work as a college student myself as an undergrad at Tulane in New Orleans and and just feeling so empowered by his ideas that were connecting with mine I was studying ecology Uh, and getting a B.S. in ecological science uh, on the one hand, and then also studying music and getting a B.A. in music on the other hand. And for me, those two worlds were very separate. I had different friends. I had different classes. I had different worlds. And essentially what David Orr was telling me, and that spoke so profoundly to me and, and sticks with me to this day, is to collapse those boundaries. Those boundaries were imposed on me by the educational institution. I you know, worked within them as somebody just trying to get a degree, but uh, essentially David Orr wants us to collapse those boundaries and connect our analytical powers to measure and uh, understand the world with emotion, and so that we connect feeling and rationality. We understand these concepts not in a binary, but heuristically separate them so that we can combine them. Uh, we think about different subjects of music and of ecology we need to connect them and combine them and I remember when I tried to do this as a student um, I was laughed at you know they they thought I would you know was just some kind of crazy tree hugger who wanted to go out in the swamp and bang on my drums or something like that and it was very dispiriting to me but that was the way the institutions worked and what it was what David Orr was advocating against he was trying to change by saying we do need to connect these disparate subjects of biology and and the arts of ecology and music whatever the case is and a third element of david orr's approach is i think something particularly useful and and appropriate for expressive culture and that is um he says that we need to provide a sober view of the world without inducing despair and i think that's where expressive culture can get at different kinds of truths than scientific truths, emotional truths that we need to come to grips with. And so um, his fourth idea for the environmental liberal arts is to live well in place. And living well in place um, is connecting people to their immediate environments in ways that we're often, uh, that we often do not do, particularly in, in this this modern world where so many people move around so readily i've done it myself and we we end up just kind of treating our places as as if we were passing through and didn't really care about them but we really need to connect better with these places and and focus on saving them and making them better because ultimately we are very small individuals in much more, uh, much larger context and we can't change the whole thing we can't make the whole thing better but we can work well on that place and that's very powerful and very useful um, as a movement to to begin making those changes so with his four kind of components of the environmental liberal arts i like to add one that i believe my little world of eco musicology as a kind of study of expressive culture um, can add to this. And I think that that's listening. I think that the capacity for listening to each other, for humans to listen to each other, um, but also of listening well to other than human subjects, the the, the non-human world, the ambient environment, uh, that can tell us things about our world and what we like and don't like and what we want to change, what works for us, what doesn't. But also just even if we don't absolutely don't understand what the world is telling us. Um, even if there's not a rational response to that, I think we can still listen at an emotional level and feel the connection that sound can engender. So I, I see musicology in my little world as just one kind of component of the environmental liberal arts, as well, the environmental humanities, the environmental sciences that are all part of this, that need to be connected and integrated. And my contribution is through this component of, of listening as a way of creating ecologically literate citizens, of listening to each other, uh, of listening to the world so that we can understand and care for life. Um, so that's where I see ecomusicology fitting into this larger idea of the environmental liberal arts that David Orr outlines.
0: His name is Aaron Allen, Associate Professor of Musicology and Director of the Environment and Sustainability Program at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. We were talking about an essay he contributed to the volume, Performing Environmentalisms. His essay has the title, Diverse Eco Musicologies, Making a Difference with the Environmental Liberal Arts. I'm CS Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Eco musicology, this is probably a new word to, to most people. Maybe people have heard the word ethnomusicology. What is eco musicology? Eco
1: musicology, as I put it, is the study of music, culture, and nature in a time of environmental crisis. And that definition, it's good that you actually brought up ethnomusicology as a way of distinguishing eco musicology. Um, I am trained as a historical musicologist. I focus on the past and historical documents. Uh, Ethnomusicologists typically focus on the present and deal more with oral history and 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 interactions with, with living subjects to understand. Very anthropological in its approach. And in both ethnomusicology and in historical musicology, there's an emphasis on connecting music sound and the, the various conceptions of sound and music with culture and humans and society. It's a kind of two-part connection that is anthropocentric. And in ecomusicology, the distinction is that we are moving towards a greater ecocentrism by making environment and nature, however it's conceived, as a fundamental aspect of what we're doing. So all ecomusicology is doing is taking that basis of historical and anthropological studies of humans and and music or sound and connecting it more with the earth system, the environment, in a move that is from anthropocentrism towards a greater ecocentrism. But I have to say, um, the term ecomusicology itself hasn't been around for a long time. It's really been only in the past few decades that we've been using it pretty regularly, although I traced it back to the 1970s, some of the earliest references that I found to it when it really meant ecological musical studies, um, which were very relevant to the contemporary uh, manifestation of it, but really when I started doing eco-musicological work uh, about 15 years or so ago, it was very much informed by eco-criticism and literary studies of the environment, um, but now I'm finding that ecological studies are also really fundamental. Of course, I have this background in ecology that I bring to bear on my music studies. And so it is a connection that uh, the eco-prefix helps to kind of make a little bit vague. It's, it's literary eco-criticism, it's scientific ecology, it's the Earth system, and that's where um, the eco-prefix keeps things a little bit vague, but uh, underlying all of those different kinds of approaches within ecomusicology is this concern for moving away from anthropocentrism and towards a greater ecocentrism as we study and consider humans and culture with our sonic environment and with the music that we make.
0: Well, I wanna have you back on again, this program to talk about ecomusicology in detail but can you give us a, a quick example of a of a case study, uh, a specific investigation in the field of eco musicology? Sure, I'd like to give you a
1: couple a couple quick little case study examples of eco musicology to paint a, a broad picture of it because it is very broad. And so, um, I, for example, have done some research on the wood that is necessary for musical instruments and how. It is so fundamental to the, the sound quality that we expect, uh, but also how it can contribute to preserving and destroying forests. So our desire for certain kinds of sounds ultimately can impact forests and, and the world. So that's one uh, kind of material example of ecomusicology. Beethoven is a, a subject that uh, in, in the music world, many people are familiar with Beethoven, so Beethoven is a subject also of some work that I've done because Beethoven loved nature very much and it inspired him and um, prompted him to write a pastoral symphony and to care in particular ways for his own health and his own life by engaging with nature. And so I think that we we can understand more about that figure of the musician, but also about his music by understanding these connections between nature and environment and what it meant to Beethoven. I think another really great example that I've not done any research on, but that I love, um, is the study of whale song, which in the 1960s and 70s was made possible through technological developments that enabled Roger Payne and Katie Payne, his wife, and, and, and a number of other people to capture whale sounds that they conceived as songs, and I certainly find them to be very song-like um, and share those not only with scientists trying to understand whale communication and whales um, places in our global oceans and, and how technology is impacting them and how development is impacting them, but that those songs, those sounds were turned into music and were shared as sounds and that helped inspire the Save the Whale movement. And so it was a profoundly uh, emotional experience for people to hear these creatures that they hadn't heard before, and, and it, it inspired a movement to save them. And so I think that eco-musicology, in that sense, it's, it's not an active pursuit in, in uh, Roger Payne's sense, but I think that it is absolutely understandable as eco-musicology, if we, we relate this sonic study of the environment and and human culture and so you know a, a quick little painting of some examples in eco musicology some that i've done some that others have done that the world though is very diverse um and that's where diverse eco musicology comes in is that there are a lot of different ways to do this which is which is i think wonderful uh as expressing not only the diversity of human experience and the diversity of life on earth and of environmental context, but also of a diversity of ways that we can engage with the power of music and sound to inform sustainability and environmental change as we confront environmental crises and social crises.
0: Aaron Allen. He's a musicologist based at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, where he directs the Environment and Sustainability Program. On againstthegrain.org, we've put a link to his faculty page at UNC Greensboro, to his co-edited book, Current Directions in Ecomusicology, and to the book Performing Environmentalisms, in which you can find the essay we focused on today. Aaron, thanks for your work and for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it and look forward to talking further.
0: And this is CS suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.